Welcome into The Verge, a show which covers the Baltimore Orioles minor leagues. The Verge is part of BSL Radio. Baltimore Sports and Life is dedicated to analysis and discussion on the Orioles, Baltimore Ravens, and the University of Maryland. The site has a team of writers providing coverage of those teams and houses live streaming content weekly. Join the conversations at the message board, like BSL on Facebook, and follow BSL on Twitter. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to On the Birds. This is Zach Spedden, joined as always by Bob Phelan and Nick Stevens. And on tonight's episode, we've got a lot to get to, including the Orioles signing some of the top picks in their 2022 draft class, headlined by Jackson Holiday, the number one overall pick in the draft. We'll also get into our day three draft coverage and round out some of the work we did last week previewing the draft before getting into our second half thoughts, which will cover both the major leagues and the minor leagues for the Orioles. But as we dive into tonight's show, we want to welcome a new member to our Patreon community, and I'll turn it over to Bob. Yeah, um, had a lot of great feedback from our draft coverage this past week. Had a lot of new patrons, and one that joined on day three of the draft, David Goodman. You are a late-round draft pick, but we still believe in your potential. Well, welcome to David, and we'll jump right into the news. Probably one of the biggest Overslot, for sure. Sorry. (laughs) We'll jump into one of the, some of the biggest news of last week, which was Jackson Holiday agreeing to terms with the Baltimore Orioles. Now, the fact that the Orioles managed to sign Holiday was not a surprise at all. You know, you take a player as that first overall pick, you have a pretty good idea of what he's going to sign for. So you knew it was going to take a substantial commitment for the Orioles to get Holiday out of his commitment to Oklahoma State University. And that's exactly what it took as he reportedly agrees to a signing bonus valued at eight. million, which is a record for a high school draft pick. It is a little bit under slot. It gives the Orioles about $600,000 or so in extra money, but Holiday still gets over $8 million and just surpasses Drew Jones for the record signing bonus for a high school draft pick. So, Nick, I'll start with you. Obviously, it's a big number for Holiday, but we know that this is a pretty special talent, and what are your thoughts now that he's probably going to be welcomed uh, in Baltimore officially here in the next few days. I, I don't know. You said the key word there, right? Underslot. I mean, what is this franchise and not willing to go uh, full slot value here? We're just going to like keep saving money. Like where's this money going? Whose pockets is this money going into? Um, Facebook impression there again. I haven't checked Orioles Facebook in a long time. Uh, I'm sure they're not thrilled by the, the signing bonus number, but no, like I think the biggest thing for me with holiday so far has just been, a lot of the stories of who he is as a leader and like this clear belief that he's going to slide right into this organization and be a good cultural fit. And I know we, we know that that's huge with this organization. I mean, as for the play itself, like the swing just really speaks for itself when you watch him. And I think Eric Longenhagen's report on fan graphs is, is about as glowing as you can get. And he says that, you know, that he checks literally every box and there aren't many left-handed hitting shortstops with this kind of juice. And he projects as an all-star shortstop. I think he even has a note in there about having higher contact rates than Tamar Johnson at some of the summer showcase circuits. So 
high praises there for a holiday. I think I even saw a funny quote or heard on a podcast. I can't remember where I saw it now to uh, adequately quote the, this person, but uh, the interview with his dad and he was jokingly saying, but I think partially joking that uh, when he was going in slumps, he would watch his then three-year-old son swing and be like, I need to do that uh, to get out of this slump. I like that's so it's just funny stories like that. I've enjoyed, uh, you know, listening from family and coaches and, you know, it's family and coaches quotes, but still it's, seems like the always got a, a good kid here. Um, even if he does look like he's nine, I, he's a baseball player. And I think for me, like the biggest thing is you see the signing bonus dollars and clearly money wasn't the issue here. That was reported. I think a couple hours before the draft had started, the Orioles were willing to go full slot here, close to full slot. And to give him that record bonus, it's clear that all the decision makers there felt in the, in the front office felt like he was the top prospect. He's better than Drew Jones, uh, in my opinion. So uh, you look at Gunnar Henderson and the success story that Gunnar Henderson is in this organization. You bring another one of these guys in, like Jackson Holiday, who might arguably, I don't know, have a higher ceiling than Gunnar Henderson. If he can be that kind of success story, then that's just phenomenal. You could be looking at... You know, dream big here a couple years down the road. A lot of development to go. Long, long way here. But to just have fun and think ahead. Like you could be looking at a MLB lineup that has Adley Rutschman as like your third or fourth best hitter. That's that's fun to think about. Yeah, absolutely. And Kevin Amig has a question here. What time frame are you guys thinking for his arrival up to the team? Three or four years? I think that's probably the slowest it will take him, to be honest, just because he's so polished even though he's so young coming out of high school he's got the the, the bloodlines from his dad matt fangraphs already has him the 18th best prospect in baseball love that you can just pick someone one week and they're one of the top 20 prospects in baseball the next and he's officially in your system should get started in the fcl in the next week or so if he ends this year in delmarva could start at aberdeen next year end in Bowie, and then it's a year after that so what 2024 we're looking at potentially so Two, three years is probably more in line if things go according to plan. Obviously, when you're that young, development could have some uh, hitches in it between injury and just development in general. But, yeah, I just loved it. We locked him up. was no drama to it at all. Just waited for Drew Jones to sign, so we'd give him 600 extra bucks, call it a day. And, uh, yeah, I'm excited to, to see what he can do. I'm sure um, Eric Garfield will have plenty of video of his at-bats in the next week or two down in Florida and then we'll get to see him on MILB TV soon after that. So love getting these fresh group of players in the system and see what the development team can do with them. Yeah, I think three to four years would be kind of the slower, more conservative time frame, assuming good health. And the one thing that I kept, I saw this thrown out there in multiple places where Jackson Holiday was compared post-draft to Bobby Witt Jr., in 2019, but with a better hit tool at the same age. Now, remember, Whip, you know, pushed Adley Rutzman for that 1-1 slot, and I think made it close in a lot of people's eyes. The Orioles obviously went with Rutzman, and I think that over time that's going to prove to be the correct, correct pick. But Whip is already in the major leagues, and for a guy as young as he is, holding his own, more than holding his own up there with Kansas City. So when you see that kind of report, it's really encouraging. Yeah, I think it was MLB Pipeline that had the piece out, like the, what, I don't know how many guys they listed, six, seven, eight uh, draft prospects who are going to be the quickest, hopefully be the quickest to reach the majors, and Jackson Holiday was on that list. Uh, and that's where, yeah, they mentioned the Bobby Witt comp there. I was more advanced already. Like, I don't, 
if he's still in the minor leagues in four years from now, there, there's a problem. I think this, this organization knows how to challenge these guys. And um, yeah, I, I'm excited. I just want him in Delmarva as soon as possible because I want to get eyes on him. Uh, I want to see what he looks like in this uniform. I want to see him swinging a bat against pro guys. I, I, I don't see any issues with just the scouting report so far and what you hear about his play and his makeup already, even though he's an 18 year old kid, this isn't a long-term high school project. Him, Drew Jones, uh, even Elijah Green, I think all these high school guys that are in contention for that one-one pick, I don't think you're going to see any of them in the minors for for very long. Yeah, I think he'll probably be just on the same trajectory as these college, you know, advanced college hitters that they took in the early rounds and or the first couple of days of the draft. So, yeah, it's exciting. If he's Bobby Witt with a better hit tool and he's lefty, he's just going to pepper Utah Street. Don't have to worry about the new wall in left field and. Yeah, we have decent play on our hand. You signed Carlos Correa in the offseason. You have Gunnar Henderson, Carlos Correa, Jackson Holiday, and you just figure out where to play him when the time comes. Sorry, was, Jordan Westbrook. That was not the only uh, signing news to come out over the past week as Dylan Beavers, the Orioles' second pick, and Judd Fabian, the Orioles' fourth pick, also agreed to terms. They were both at Candom Yards over the weekend. We've talked a lot about Beavers and Fabian since night one of the draft when they were both selected. And I think that what you're getting with these two players are, you know, college outfielders that are fairly polished, have, you know, some questions with the hit tool, but undeniable upside and a skill set that the Orioles have shown they can work with when you take players like Kyle Stowers into consideration. Uh, yeah. yeah, with Beavers, I'm getting more and more excited about the idea of Beavers and what he brings to this organization. And I think it all goes back to the Kyle Stowers and what he's doing this year. And I know there have been a lot of comps to Kyle Stowers already, and I get it. I think it makes a lot of sense. But uh, even since the Orioles made that pick, the buzz and hype around Beavers seems to be growing. And you see more and more outlets come out and say, well, I had a first round grade on this kid. I think if the hit tool comes around, it's going to be a really good prospect and a really big hit for the Orioles. You see a lot of the terms like data darling thrown out by multiple outlets about multiple different guys, but Beavers is one of those guys. Uh, I'm curious to know like how the Orioles view Beavers, the higher ceiling than Kyle Stowers. Uh, well, how does he compare there in their eyes? If he has a higher ceiling, then this is a great pickup. And Fabian wasn't super excited about the pick when it first happened, but I mean, to me, now that I'm looking at this draft class as a whole, I'm thinking about it a little bit more. I think he could be one of the most interesting picks of this whole draft class, only because we know he's a solid defender with good power. He can draw a lot of walks. Like That's all. He's done that at Florida on, on a given. But I think a lot of that future comes down to his hit tool. And if the Orioles can work on that, you have an everyday regular outfielder who I don't think spends a whole lot of time in the minor leagues. I think there's a lot of risk here, but clearly the Orioles wanted him last year. They And if he stayed high on their boards this year and they went after him, then I think that says a lot. And I like Ben McDonald, I think had a quote earlier this week, comparing him to Austin Hayes, you know, Ben McDonald, big sec guy. He's, he's seen a lot of Fabian. Uh, I I could see that comp. I kind of get that Uh, as far as like style of play and maybe how fast even he could get to the majors. I don't know, but you know, I think the Austin Hayes development story is another good one that you can look at when thinking about Fabian and, Talking about fan graphs, Eric Loggenhagen already put out his re-rank. He's got Judge Fabian as a 10th-ranked prospect in the system right now, which is above Kerstad, above Beavers, above Taron Vavra, right behind Jordan Westberg, who's at 9. That's, that's pretty high praise for the kid. Yeah, I love the Fabian and Beavers picks back-to-back. No no uh, shade to Max Wagner, who I'm sure there's plenty to be excited about there, but 
I can't get excited about a right-handed hitter that will probably end up in left field or first base more than these outfielders that really could be, you know, obviously you never know. There's some things, some risks there. Fabian, God, I could see him being Ryan McKenna with his defense and not being able to hit the ball very much with power when he does. And Beavers, who knows, maybe his swing, that hitching his swing, uh, lack of follow-through won't necessarily work at the professional level. But just the upside of those guys, I just absolutely love it. Beavers, you know, first-round potential guy. This is the kind of guy that we're probably going to see the Orioles take when we're eventually good in a year or two and have to pick at the end of the first round. So love that you can get him on top of the 18th best prospect in baseball, according to Fangraphs. And yeah, Fabian, the upside is like, you can really dream on him, especially for a guy that you got with the 67th pick. I mean, can't ask for much more than that. Yeah, with Fabian, I think that you do want to see, he did make some big improvements this year at Florida. Uh, batting average was still a little low for what I think you'd typically associate with the, you know, advanced college hitter, but it was a significant step forward from 2021. So if he's able to continue that progression, maybe you get him to the point where he can go out and hit, you know, kind of do what Kyle Stowers is doing right now and cut back on the strikeouts, still hit for power, maintain a high walk rate. That would kind of be the goal with Fabian. And you put that together with a player that, most evaluators seem to agree he could stick in center field, and that's an interesting package. Yeah, to me, he's like Zach Watson on steroids. So, Ben DeWurst, if you're listening, you like Zach Watson as much as you do, you better love Judd Fabian because you're going to get a, you know, a low batting average, but power and speed and great defense in center field. So, yeah, that's what he is to me. I can see that. I I'm not concerned at all about the strikeout issues. Seeing what how well he improved at Florida from year to year was super impressive. And then once you get him into this system, I think you're going to continue to see that improve. So, so yeah, for me, it all just comes down to that batting average. Can you hit higher than 220 or 230? If you can get up and be a 250, 260 hitter, uh, you got a really good piece here in Judd Fabian, who you got really late in this draft, considering what type of player he could be. So we'll, we'll see. It kind of, I feel bad for him to a certain extent because he lost a lot of money, I feel like, this year by going back to Florida and betting on himself. But it, it's a win for the Orioles, and it could be a, a huge win for the Orioles if, if all goes right in his development. Yeah, and he's also Zach Watson if Zach Watson could walk. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, I think between him and Beavers, it's it's all good in the outfield. I guess you can never have enough outfield depth, at least according to Michael Ice and the Orioles, because, man, are they loaded out there. And can we, we look back at the trade? I don't know if we ever mentioned this, but like Judd Fabian completed the Tanner Scott and Cole Solcer trade. So to me, that, that was the other point. I didn't even write this down. Uh, why Judd Fabian was one of the best picks this draft because you traded Tanner Scott and Cole Solcer. I don't know what they're doing in Miami. Probably nothing good. But you got Antonio Velez, who I, you know hasn't looked great. The changeup is phenomenal. Every start I watch of Velez, the changeup is fantastic. But a lot of home runs, coupled like two or three trips already to the IL. Rough go for him, but Yaki Rivera is ranked really high on Fangraphs prospect list. Really young teenage arm, uh, and now oh, who was the other kid? What was the second part of that? Antonio oh, Velez, Yaki Rivera, Kevin Kevin Guerrero in the Kevin uh, Guerrero, FCL. another young arm who the Marlins really challenged. Uh, his his numbers are looking better down the FCL, and uh, now you get Judd Fabian on top of that. That's yeah, great start to that trade. Yeah, absolutely. That is a great point because if you're, according to Fangraphs, Yaki Rivera is our 35th best prospect. Kevin Guerrero is our 30th. 
don't know if Velez is high up here, but like you said, Fabian's our 10th, according to them. So, yeah, excellent trade for two relievers that are uh, have both had the closers role in Miami for brief periods and lost it. So what do you what do you know? <laughs> Trading relievers for for prospects and draft picks, not always a bad idea. Yeah, right now, Cole Saucer is on the 15-day IL. Tanner Scott ha- is having the Tanner Scott season. ERA of 4.43. He's pitched 40 innings. He's struck out 58 batters, but he's walked 28. Shocker. Yeah. Sounds like Tanner Scott to me. I could have written that out like in February. <laughs> Flashes of brilliance and moments of pulling your hair out. Yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah, just to get into be- that, that trade a little more, and I'm glad you brought it up, Nick. You know, Guerrero is a really young guy in the FCL, and, and the batting line has not been great for him this year. But you got a walk rate of 23% when you're 18 years old. That's something that shows signs to me that that's a player you can work with. Yeah, and I like the report. Right after that trade happened, you, there was a report somewhere. Uh, I want to say it was Aram Layton uh, that was writing this up, and he had mentioned that when he when Guerrero was still with the Marlins. They had him on the backfields going up against, you know, the AAA, AA spring training minor league camp rosters. Uh, so they were really challenging this kid over there in Miami. And now he comes to Baltimore and, you know, we'll see. It, it seems like he's in the FCL. So this is only his first year. He only had 39 games last year in the Dominican Summer League. So he's still very young, very raw. But you mentioned when you're looking at those FCL and DSL numbers, we've said plenty of times before, the first thing I look at is the walks and the strikeouts. And strikeouts are you know, a little bit high, 30 strikeouts in 23 games, but 22 walks is, is phenomenal. 337 on base percentage, and, and the numbers are ticking up so far. So, yeah, I I love this trade so far. And Judd Fabian is Judd Fabian's probably the best piece of this trade, to be totally honest. So if Kevin Guerrero or any of these other guys work out, great, but great pick. Yeah, I would trade those two relievers for Judd Fabian straight up, even before the draft. So, yeah, yeah it's a win-win, and we got a couple extra pieces. It might turn out to be something. Move on now to day three of the MLB draft, which was rounds 11 through 20. Nick did do a solo episode that I believe went out to patrons uh, immediately after that part of the draft concluded. But the three of us have not had a chance on a regular episode to react to it as a group. And what we're going to do is we're each going to pick. We've each picked a player that was chosen on day three of the draft that we want to talk about and highlight. And I'll start with Bob. Yeah, I took the easy route, went with the first pick of the third day, the 11th rounder, high school starting pitcher right-hander, uh, Zach Showalter. I think he's out of Florida. Um, just a, you know, one of the few high school pitchers that the Orioles have taken, and I think it's going to be an overslot deal. There's that word we love. Um, but uh, he's got some electric stuff for a, a young kid, 17, 18 years old, got a, already a mid-90s fastball, with, <laughs> like we talked about a million times. A hoppy mid-90s fastball with a good breaking stuff and a feel for a change that the Orioles can fine-tune. So, yeah, I think this is kind of like uh, this year's version of Carter Baumler. Obviously, probably not as much upside as Baumler when we drafted him in the fifth round, fourth round of uh, the 2020 draft. So I, I just like the the upside play here with uh, get him into the Orioles pitching development system early get him going out there building up innings and maybe you know this could be a guy that's in our top 30 in, in a couple of years i'm just interested clearly this is it's an overslot kid but i'm interested to know just how much overslot with him because 
you know, he's not, he wasn't a Florida State commit or you know a University of Florida commit or a Miami commit. He was a South Florida commit. And so, and he was being the first pick on day three. There was a, a long period there where I feel like the Orioles could have communicated with him and you mm-hmm. know, worked something out. So I'm interested to see. But my guy that I'm going with is I wanted to go with Carter Young, the shortstop out of Vanderbilt, but I'm kind of going to be shocked if he signs. So I think we'll have to kind of wait and have that, maybe have that conversation after he signs. But I keep getting attracted. And I mentioned this on the day three podcast that I keep finding myself attracted to 20th round pick, Resharp. Right-handed pitcher out of Indiana. He was actually the second Indiana pitcher taken by the Orioles. Uh, so that tells you something about, I don't know anything about Indiana college baseball, but apparently they've got pitchers that the Orioles really like. Um, mostly a reliever in college, but like you mentioned, Bob, in every single Oriole drafted, when I had all these reports I had from all the different sources that I used to learn about some of these guys you know, that I'd never heard of, every all their reports were pretty much the exact same. And then Brad Selick gets on and, and does an interview with Masson, and he just basically says their reports word for word. And like All of these guys match what he said perfectly. So it's clear there was one type of pitcher the Orioles went after, and they just grabbed all that they could find, uh, which is fine. But um, I, for whatever reason, like he's, he's got this deep pitch mix, four pitches according to some reports, Really, really good swing and miss numbers, and the movement profile on these pitches as well is really impressive. I love a lot of the data that's out there. Thanks to guys, you know, Tyrion Alexander and Mason McCray. They're amazing databases that they have hundreds and hundreds of names. But mention that Sharp can get up to 96 miles an hour, 55 grade curveball, potential plus slider, fastball gets a ton of swing and misses, changeup. He's got this, the changeup in his tool belt, but he never used it. And we know that point about changeups in the Orioles. So I'm not getting like Brandon Young vibes, you know, after you know, initi- after initially watching Brandon Young and just falling in love with him and thinking this is going to be a dude, but it's it's close for me. I, so my gut, this is pure gut instinct. Uh, I think Reese Sharp is going to be the name that I'm watching most closely. Yeah, I like both of those picks, and with So Walter in particular, I, there is undeniable upside when you got a right-hander, a high scorer who's topping out at 95. It seems like the delivery and the secondaries are going to need work. But assuming that he does sign, if he does sign, I think the Orioles you know, will hopefully be able to put their formula in place to get him successful. The guy that I'm going to pick is actually someone who does come with some signability risk, and that's Andrew Walters, the 18th rounder out of Miami. Uh, what we have heard is that he has been reported out there that he's expected to be tough to sign, I believe in part because his younger brother is going to play for Miami next year. And that's kind of a factor pulling him back to the Hurricanes. But here's someone who ranked inside the top 150 for both MLB Pipeline and Baseball America as far as draft prospects went. And just an absolutely dominant reliever at Miami, you know, striking out more than half the batters he faced and had a whiff rate of over 40%. And he's got a fastball that can touch 100 miles an hour. What he doesn't seem to have quite yet is a secondary, you know, a good pitch that he can pair with that fastball to be more than the dominant, you know, one pitch shutdown reliever. Yeah. I think typically where relievers are risky is that there are, you know, one pitch, two pitch guys, and one of those pitches just dropped off. So the Orioles really are going to have to try to develop some secondaries with Walters, but if they can do that, Number one, this is an excellent pick in the third to last round of the draft. And number two, he can move quickly, uh, especially because you're probably not going to experiment with developing him as a starter. 
it's going to be a pure reliever profile. And if, you know, if the Orioles sign him, the first project I think is going to have to be is what can we, can we take this swerve that he has and make it into a viable secondary? Because if you can, he's the type of reliever who could work through the minor leagues quickly. Yeah, it's a great point. I think he's already got the high 90s fastball. I'm sure it's got a ton of hop on it. And like you said, he's not going to be one of these guys where they said, you know, pretty much all these guys are going to be started as starters and and try to go from there. If they have to move to the bullpen later, they will. This is a guy that's strictly bullpen. He's got a lightning fastball. And if, like you said, if they can turn that slurve into a like a one of those sweeping sliders or they can tighten it up a little bit, maybe, you know, you got a, a big time back end of the bullpen guy late in a draft. We'll see. I actually expect Walters to sign. I think Carter Young's going to be the one that, is like a backup plan for maybe Zach Showalter or another guy that they're planning on having to give more money than expected. If something falls through, maybe they think one of the guys that they had that plan with is a little risky. If he'll accept their deal, then maybe Carter Young is the backup plan. But uh, yeah, I, I love the pick. And actually I think even though looking back at the 2019 draft and it's like, wow, could it get any better? I think just based on a week after the draft, I think, this is my favorite draft under the Elias regime total. Just happy right away, and it's only gotten better in the week since it happened. Very happy with what they did last week. Yeah. Since it has come up twice now, um, Bob and Nick, you've both mentioned it. We probably should ta- talk about Carter Young a little bit, just to get in some background, especially for listeners that may not have followed day three that closely. Young is a shortstop out of Vanderbilt that the Orioles took with the 17th round. He earned a lot of hype back in 2017 at the 18 and under World Cup and looks like a really good prospect coming into college. But injuries and struggles at the plate have really held him back. Where he has a little bit of leverage is, number one, he's still a good defender, and he's set to transfer to LSU next spring. So he could go to LSU, get himself back on track offensively, combine that with what is still really good defense, and shoot way up the draft boards next year. I mean – probably, you know, certainly higher than the 17th round. Or he could sign with the Orioles and they try to refine the hit tool. But Young is a player where, you know, certainly the potential is greater than the surface level stats that he has put up at Vanderbilt and where there's a little bit more leverage than there may seem. Yeah, I don't know what to – I really don't know what to think about him just because he was what one of the top, if not the top high school prospect in the country – uh, was going to be a potential, you know, first round draft pick, and then now you're looking here as a 17th rounder for the Orioles. And, and even then, you know, was he drafted too high? Uh, just based on some of these numbers and stuff. But you know, it's it seems like the the shoulder surgery he had kind of zapped everything from him, and that could be a reason why a lot of these numbers dipped. But and you look back at his, I believe it was a sophomore season. He hit he only hit 252, but he had an OPS like 900. 16 home runs, 15 doubles. Uh, you mentioned how he's a great defender. So I, I, I don't know. It's I, This could be a difficult sell job, I think, for the Orioles. Uh, but I'm most curious to see if he does sign Walter. If he signs, I think that's great. Like you mentioned, he could definitely be in the major leagues like end of next year. If he's if he's that good and that fastball is really that good, this is not Garrett Crochet level speed, but uh, it could be extremely fast riders through the system. But Young, if the Orioles are able to bring him in, and you know the shoulders not damaged goods, and he's fixable. Then like, this is like not being a homer here. This is a home run draft potential. Uh, but 
Uh, it's Young's Young's the enigma in this draft class. I'm I'm curious to get more thoughts because I haven't really seen a whole lot of discussion either about Young. It was like he's going to be difficult to sign. He's probably going back to LSU. Case closed. No, no one's really seems to be talking about this unless I'm just missing it. No, I I haven't heard much about it either. And I wonder if the Orioles are going to sit him down and say, "Have you heard of Joey Ortiz? Because he had a shoulder injury, and look how we're bringing him back. He's electric since uh, the end of June." Um, you know, come with us and we'll we'll get you right. I don't know. But I don't know. If they could sign him, that that's crazy. That is uh, going to be a magic trick by Elias and Selick and company because, yeah, I think he he's probably better off just going to LSU, trying to rebound his value and, and maybe go in the, in the first two days of a draft instead of the third. But at the same time, if uh, if he has another season like he did this past year, then you know, he'll probably be an undrafted free agent by somebody this time next year. I don't know. It's very interesting. Well, and like I mentioned before the draft too, the impact of NIL, like that's going to play a role here too. You have to imagine, can the Orioles offer more money than LSU can with NIL? And, uh, you know, imagining LSU, I doubt it. I think LSU could probably, even though he's not a football player, he's baseball, but still baseball is kind of a big deal at LSU. I think they're going to be able to find him plenty of money so he can, bet against himself again, come back, rehab at one of the top baseball programs in the country, make a million plus dollars next year while playing college baseball, and then try again next year in the draft. And then, yeah, like you mentioned, if worse comes to worse, he signs for, what, $10,000, $20,000, maybe a little bit more as an undrafted free agent and gets a shot. So, mm-hmm. I, yeah, I was trying to put myself in his shoes. I don't know anything about this kid, but like, personally, I'd go back to LSU. But, yeah, we'll see, I guess. Yeah, I'm going to read a quote here from Brad Selick, and this is in the Baltimore Sun. Um, which, by the way, the Sun had excellent draft coverage this year. Uh, this is referring to Young. Obviously, whenever you have a guy that has proven himself that he can play in the SEC as a capable defender at shortstop and has shown power, not so much potentially this year, but last year. Had a little bit of a down year this year, so that's potentially why he dropped, but we're really excited to add him to this class, and we'll obviously see what happens as we open negotiations and go from there. And, uh, you know, one thing to point out with Young this year or the last two years, he's had a strikeout rate hovering around 30 percent to go with batting averages that dropped after his freshman shortened pandemic season when he hit 328 in 18 games, followed it up with 252 and 207 seasons. This year, we did see the walk rate tick up a little bit, but otherwise the numbers were kind of down across the board for Young. Yeah. We'll see what what happens with him. But, um, I mean, elsewhere with day three, did you guys know the Orioles drafted a seven-footer? Just in case anybody missed it, they drafted a guy who's seven feet tall. Bob's muted. Gosh darn it. <laughs> I was saying he was trying to hide, but he couldn't. Um, yeah, just can't imagine having to face a guy that – and didn't he say he actually got up to 96 with his fastball? <laughs> He's pairing that with, like, a curveball that seems like it's coming out of the clouds in the sky. It's like – Man, that's got to be interesting to face him at the plate. Yeah, we'll, we'll see. We'll see with Carter Young. Um, and really the only other note I have here about the, the day three picks is, uh, remember when we mentioned Cameron Weston on a day two recap and, and how we were like, that's the pick we were least excited about and how boring he seemed because there really was like no information about this kid, right-hander out of Michigan. Mm-hmm. Uh, he did get uh, highlighted in Eric Long and Hagen's piece over at Fangraphs. Said Michigan righty sits in the low 90s with sink and tail, plus changeup that plays nicely off his heater. I think just the fact that he's mentioned there is uh, maybe we should be a little bit more excited about Cameron Weston. 
and watch him come out and be like the gem of this, the back end of this draft class. Yeah, he'll be the Justin Armbruster, Peter Van Loon of this. Yeah, that's another thing that that gets me excited about this draft and how many pitchers they took. What was it, 12 out of the 22 picks? Um, just look at last year's crop of pitchers who were all later round picks outside of Carlos Tavera. I mean, they're just having so much success up and down, all of them for the most part. And obviously the only pitcher they took in 2020 was Carter Baumler. And we, from what we've seen, the little we've seen of him, he's been excellent as well. Just to get some more of these talented arms and they started picking them earlier. So I think they probably have a little bit higher upside on their, on their board. I'm excited this time next year. I think they're going to be peppering our top 50 list with, with some of these names. Speaking of which, our top 50 list is going to be updated here in the next couple of weeks. It'll appear on BaltimoreSportsAndLife.com and we'll be covering the podcast here as well. And by then, hopefully we'll have a lot more players sign out of this draft class. We'll be able to give you a really comprehensive top 50 of guys that are officially in the organization. Uh, if you have not checked it out already, you can go back and listen to our day one and day two MLB draft class um, coverage. That was from last week and then tonight. Kind of uh, wrap it up with day three reports. We'll move on now to the second half. Uh, really post-All-Star break, because technically the majors did play more than half the schedule for the All-Star break this year. But Orioles right now, a game under 500, not a place that anybody saw them coming into this year being this late into the season. Things were going right along in the farm system. But, of course, we're coming up on the trade deadline, and – it seems like the Orioles could go multiple avenues, but there's already speculation flying. You know, is this trade Mancini's last home stand in Baltimore? Are they going to trade a reliever? Are they going to trade Anthony Santander? Time will tell, but we thought it would be interesting to kind of pick out a few things that we could see happen in the second half. And I'm going to start with some of the players that are at AAA right now that should reasonably make the majors were making strong cases to make the majors. Three of them were already on the 40-man roster. That's D.L. Hall, Taryn Vavra, and Kyle Stowers. Stowers made a cameo when the Orioles were in Toronto last month um, and has been hitting the cover off the ball at Norfolk. Otherwise, Hall and Vavra have not appeared in the majors. Vavra did come off the IL somewhat recently. He's been hitting really well since. The other two are Jordan Westberg and Gunnar Henderson. With the seasons they're having... They're pretty much solidifying their statuses as two of the best prospects in the system. Henderson right now is pushing his way into the conversation as one of the best prospects in the game. Um, and both have continued to hit the cover off the ball at Norfolk. And it also feels convenient that you could plug them into the left side of your infield tomorrow for the Orioles, and they would probably make the team better or at least more exciting. So, I'll just kind of throw this out there, which is when you look at that group of five, it feels like Hall, Vavra, and Stowers are questions of when and not if they settle into the majors this year. I would still be surprised to see Westberg or Henderson, and not because of their performances, but just a matter of whether or not the Orioles really feel like this is the time to bring them up. Um, I should note, though, that if they would bring them up in August rather than next April. That's not going to affect anything with service time. So that consideration is out the window. I just don't know if they would make that leap yet. It's a great question. Sorry, Nick. Um, I, yeah, I don't know. I think it's going to a lot. It's going to have to do with the record when it comes to, I think 
the record right now and whatever it is before the trade deadline, I do not think it's going to change Elias's plan as far as buying and selling. Like we are sellers. <laughs> the only way we'll buy is if it's a cost controlled arm for under control for several years, a la Pablo Lopez or whoever. Um, Justin, Justin Bieber, Shane Bieber, um, you know, one of those types of guys. But I think Trey Mancini, if he's not gone by the time you're listening to this tomorrow, I think he will definitely be gone by the time uh, the trade deadline rolls around. Let's see, Santander, him and Keegan Aiken, hey, all of a sudden they have their vaccines and travel to Toronto is not an issue. Does this increase their trade value? Potentially. Um, I do think a bullpen arm will probably be moved. Jordan Lowes could possibly be moved. But, and at that point, obviously, Stowers, Vavra, Hall, they'll all be up. And it's almost like you're buying in a way. You're selling some of these veterans for some prospects or what have you. And you're also improving the team potentially at the same time by bringing these vaunted prospects up. And when it comes to Westberg and Henderson, I feel like if mid to late August, we're still hovering around 500, hey, bring them up especially Westberg. I think Westberg is almost assuredly going to be up before the end of the year, but even uh, Gunnar Henderson, if we're relatively competitive, even after the trade deadline, yeah, bring them up and, and give them a run, see if they can uh, push them over the edge or at least give them a good experience of having some, you know, competitive major league games that actually have some potential meaning. I think that could be valuable as well. So yeah, I think the Vavra he'll be up. He'll replace Odor in the starting lineup, maybe spell, Mullins in center field every once in a while. Stowers will be up to play right field, DH, depending on whether one or both of Mancini and Santander are gone. And Dio Hall, I mean, he should be up already, but he'll definitely be up by then. And then record dependent on the other two. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm not in the prediction business anymore. I'm, I'm out of that. Uh, more so, we can still do our prediction episodes, but like in terms of when is this prospect going to get called up or who are the Orioles going to trade? I, I have no clue anymore because if Theo Hall isn't ready to be brought up at this point, then I really don't know anymore. But, um, and also with the trade deadline, I wish there was a way that you could like block images on Twitter. So I don't have to see everybody's fake trades from the fake trade generator oh website. Cause Jesus Christ, I'd rather have <laughs> full blown mock draft season, 365 days a year than see those trade proposals. But anyway, uh, from a prospect point of view that, uh, yeah, like Hall, Stowers, Vavra, they all deserve to be in the majors right now. Uh, Hall has nothing left to prove in AAA. What, 40 of his last 80 batters he struck out, and that doesn't include that one inning he pitched Friday night where he struck out two more guys. Like, I was skeptical of that that tipping pitches report, but clearly something was fixed, and clearly something has been unlocked with him, and it could have been that. So I kind of do believe that report now because those July numbers were literal video game numbers on rookie mode. And that's probably one of the best months of pitching I've ever seen, uh, minors or majors. Uh, Vavra, like, my thoughts on Vavra are, let's just not make this another Jemai Jones situation. Shout out to Jemai for getting picked up by the Dodgers, apparently. Uh, good for him. But, like, we're not expecting Taron Vavra to be an everyday starting second baseman. Maybe if he's brought up at some point this year, it'd be an everyday regular. But we've mentioned this plenty of times before, that I think his future is that of a high-quality utility option who gives you deep at-bats, smart at bats uh, and you can enter a really high IQ hitter in your lineup every day, or you can fit him in there where you need him. Uh, I think he's going to be valuable in that way. I have all the confidence in the world that he's going to be a major leaguer for a very long time. And Kyle Stowers, I mean, 
he's already he had what 51 extra base hits last year i just tweeted it out yesterday i already forgot the number but <laughs> like 51 extra base hits last year across three levels he's already up to 42 or 43 he's got three in the last two days uh, extra base hits now 17th home run last night the strikeout rate we mentioned before has dropped significantly like kyle stowers is ready he needs to be on a major league roster asap to see what he can do and yeah i mean westberg you can make a logical case as to why we won't see them until later in the year or maybe even opening day next year i don't like it or necessarily agree with it but like henderson makes a lot more sense there but westberg by the end of the year he's got to be up in the majors um and these are guys that you, you're fixing holes in the major league roster. They're not stopgap options. And these are guys who are going to make your lineup better. They're, some of these are potential all-star caliber players. And you, you're going to get addition by subtraction, I feel like, at this trade deadline. I mentioned before that I don't think you need to go off and pull that trade quite yet. This offseason, go crazy. Bring these guys up. I like the point Bob just made there. These guys are going to be playing in competitive baseball games. If you bring up Westberg and Stowers and Vavra and all these guys, that's much better experience than playing on a team that's you know 40 and 80 right now. So they're going to be playing in more competitive baseball games. They're going to get their feet wet now. Go big, sign the free agent this offseason or two, make a big trade or two, start trading these prospects and come next year with a healthy Rodriguez, a healthy deal hall, gloves off, and let's have a year. Let's fight for the playoffs next year. Yeah, next year's going to be so much fun. I can't wait. Yeah. Maybe it is possible that if you see Westberg and Henderson, it does have to do. I don't think you're radically going to shift plans depending on the team's record, but I think there is an argument that if the Orioles post trade deadline are hovering in the wild card picture still, go ahead and bring up Westberg and Henderson because they're going to make the roster better. Uh, they're going to plug some holes, especially at third base. And you're getting them ready for 2023. So it's not just a short-term play. It's a long-term thing where maybe that experience in 2022 will make them a little bit better right out of the gate in 2023, which will help make you more competitive. I think that Vavra, if you bring him up, you use him in sort of a utility-type role like Nick mentioned, where maybe he's not the everyday second baseman. Ramona Rias is hitting right now. Um, so you know he's probably going to get a little bit more action at second. But you can move, you know, Vavra's second base, center field. He also has some professional experience on the left side of the infield, although I don't know that he's played it with the Orioles. And then, you know, Hall, there's really no reason I can think of why he should be in AAA right now. It's a question of when and not if we see him this summer. Um, I'm, I'm not going to sit here and predict because I have no clue, but we are going to see him. And then Stowers, it's just a matter of moving – one of Mancini or Santander in the next week. And that will clear up your at-bats for him. Because right now, if you brought him to the major leagues, you wouldn't necessarily have the at-bats for him. But with one of those two out of the picture, you would. Yeah, that's a good good point. And with Vavra, Nick, how good is his arm in the outfield? Can he play right field too, left field? Like maybe left field is a better, you know, you don't need quite as good an arm in left field, but how versatile can he be? I don't know about the arm. And I was actually thinking about that the other day because he was playing center field. And I'm like, all right, I, let me see if he gets any of these plays. How good is the arm? Because that's something I never paid attention to. And and then he he kind of made a, some, some weird routes on some plays out there in center field. I think he had trouble picking up the ball 
uh, in, in Durham over the weekend. But I mean, that's a good question about the arm. You know, could he play a corner outfield spot as well and just be the super utility type guy? And who was that there? Uh, Simpkins point there. Yeah, weird that the O's haven't played Baver at third base or shortstop. Maybe that tells you a little bit something about the arm. Maybe. I, I don't know, because he really hasn't. I mean, they've moved Prate, Cesar Preto over there is playing a lot of third base now. Uh, and it's just been Gunner and Westberg up in AAA. So I don't know. That's a good point, though, about the arm. Well, uh, Vavra is literally, I think, the smartest hitter in the upper levels of the minor leagues. Like, he's going to come up and, again, he doesn't have to hit 300 in the majors. He's going to work deep at counts for you, and he's going to be one of the smartest hitters. He may, It's not going to be the best hitter in your lineup, but he's going to give you good professional at-bats every single time up there in the big leagues. And I, I want to see what he's got. Yeah, I think he'll mostly play second base, but obviously he can, he has been playing a lot of center field. Obviously, they want him to have that in his back pocket, so he'll get at bats all all over the place, most likely left field, center field, second base, DH. I mean, but he's going to give you a great at bat. He's he's like a perfect leadoff hitter. He's going to take walks, even a great pinch hitter late in games. If someone that you can really rely on to give you a solid at bat, either smack a single in between the infield and outfield. They're after us. It sounds right outside your house. <laughs> <laughs> um, he might hit a double, probably not many home runs, but he, he's going to take a walk or he's going to slap a single or a double. And, yeah, it's valuable. Just get pitch counts up. We, As good as the Orioles have been hitting, not a ton of guys that are really working counts other than Adley Rutschman and maybe Tyler Nevin, who plays once every three games. So I'm looking over Vavra's defensive log, and those are all great points about his offense. Fabra has been used at third base once his entire time in the Orioles farm system. Actually never played third in the Rockies system. He appeared at shortstop in two games last season with Bowie. Um, when he was with Asheville in 2019, which was his last full season in the Rockies system, he had 41 games at second, 53 games at short. I feel like I remember at the time of the Michael Gibbons trade, the reports I read about Vavra. Um, noted that profile of having played on both sides of the second base bag at Asheville, but that he was more likely to stick at second base in the major leagues. And I don't remember specifically if the arm was mentioned, but the reports at that time kind of indicated he was more of a second baseman than a shortstop. And I think what the Orioles have decided to do is rather than keep him in that second short utility profile, they've started to move him around the outfield more. And I, it looks like he's fine in center field from what I've seen. You know, I wouldn't say that he's on par with Cedric Mullins if he has to go out there and, you know, give Mullins a night off, but I think he's fine out there. Yeah. I, I was just going to say, I think, you know, kind of like Austin Hayes, like he can definitely give you a solid performance out there in a pinch. I don't necessarily think you want him to be your everyday guy. Might get a little bit exposed at that point, but yeah, he can play out there, you know, once a week, maybe. Yeah, I mean, Stowers can play center field as well, too. You bring him up, and you need to shift the outfield around. He he can definitely play. I loved last night. Uh, yeah, it was yesterday's game. Videl Brujan over at Durham tried to challenge Stowers in his arm in right field, and Stowers gunned him down like 20 feet short of second base. That was embarrassing on Brujan's part. Terrible base running <laughs> over there. But, like, Stowers is very sneaky, very good defensively. Strong arm, athletic, made a lot of – Great diving plays, good showing off good range. 
I don't think that part of Stowers game gets talked about enough. Uh, whether you are big in a defense or not, I, I get it, but that's a whole other dimension that he brings uh, to the organization when they finally bring him up, which has it, got to be soon. One other um, trend we're going to point to here is is part of our kind of second half uh, preview. Joey Ortiz, um, one of the break big breakout stories of last season with how much better he had gotten at the plate between Aberdeen and Bowie. Unfortunately, his injury, his season was cut short by a shoulder injury. He comes back on the field right away this year and continues to do some of the things that we've always liked about Joey Ortiz. Uh, play an excellent defensive shortstop move around the infield and play good defense no matter where he is. But the bat didn't come back for the first three months of the season. He really struggled. However, he's kicked it into another gear over the month of July. Uh, As of July 25th, he had appeared in 17 games over the month, 68 plate appearances, slashing 355, 397, 532 with two homers and eight RBIs, a 929 OPS. So not only is Ortiz making contact, he's hitting the ball hard, and that power uptick that we saw in 2021 has come back into play. So I'll start this off with Nick. After you know a real cold spell to start the year at the plate, we're kind of seeing what we saw a year ago from Joey Ortiz. Do you think it's sustainable in any way the rest of the way, even if he's not hitting 355 over the last two months? Absolutely, yes. And I'm actually writing an article right now that I wanted to have finished this morning, but Sunday was was a lot. Uh, but basically looking at a couple of prospects, I picked four or five guys that I anticipate having big second halves or you know, final thirds, whatever this is. Minor league season is very quickly about to wrap up here, especially in the lower levels. But uh, guys coming back from injuries like Joey Ortiz, some young up-and-comers who are getting more national attention, and even some guys who I think have shown flashes of unlocking something bigger. Uh, but spoiler alert, Joey Ortiz was the first name. I pretty much just wanted to write about Joey Ortiz and spread this out. Uh, so he is what I'm writing this piece for. Uh, I was grateful enough to watch him on Friday night. Uh, that was my first pro game that I've been able to see live this year. This is I wasn't anticipating getting into any games this season because life has been a lot this year in a good way, but it's been a lot. Uh, but it was good to down some 32 ounce hardywoods uh, at the diamond on friday night and the thing that stuck out to me other than just how amazing it felt to be back at a pro baseball stadium again is that uh you got this lineup of colton Kowser, connor norby uh cesar Pareto, even who kind of commands your attention but joey ortiz really draws your eye defensively and at the plate and I, he's one of the guys that really stands out and i think that's hard to do in this lineup uh and you just look at his past like go back to his short season when he was then with short with mm, restart back when he was first drafted and was with then short season Aberdeen uh, drafted what fourth round, I think in the 2019 draft. I think so. That sounds right. So first year in that Michael Ice era is draft year adjusting to a new life. And we know this adjustment period where I don't really have many major takeaways from these players, but only 56 games with Aberdeen. No 2020 season because of COVID. Then he comes in last year, gets just 19 games in Aberdeen before he gets promoted to Bowie. And then he only gets, what, 16 games, I think, in Bowie before he tears his labrum and misses the rest of the season. So he just hasn't played. And when you think about it, this is really his first full season as a pro, and it's coming at the double-A level. So I think it might have taken a while, much longer than anyone would have hoped for, for that bat to come around. But I think it's fine now. He's one of the hottest hitters in the system. 
it's good hits. It's not, you know, bloop singles. It's not, you know, Babip luck. Like he's getting the job done here. And I think we're seeing 2021 Aberdeen Joey Ortiz starting to mix in with a little 2021 Bowie Joey Ortiz. And it's, it's, it's a lot of fun to watch him play. Yeah, I think it's easy to forget just how serious that injury was and how early in the season it came last year. So, look, he's a guy that made huge strides from 2019 to 2021, and he's just beginning to put them, put those improvements into game action and, and have it translate, and then, boom, he's out with a serious injury. That's, you know, it's going to take a while to get back in the swing of things, not just, like, getting used to – using your shoulder again in the exact same way, but to relearn all the stuff that you learned in the two years leading up to last year, if that makes any sense. But it, uh, I, I think it is sustainable. I think, you know, insert John Wick gif here. I'm thinking he's back. He's a, uh, he's, he's a guy I think that can give you excellent shortstop defense and he might be able to give you like a 750 OPS. And with the defense that he could provide, I think that's, that's incredibly, incredibly valuable if he can get all the way back and stay there. The one thing that gave me a little bit of hope with Ortiz over the sluggish months um, to start this season was that his strikeout rate was consistent with where it has been in the past. In fact, it's a little bit lower than it was last year. Right now it's around 18%. Um, Walk rate is down, but the strikeouts aren't very high. And that was encouraging to me because he's always been a guy that, is known for a good plate approach. Even when he came into the farm system and was sort of labeled a glove first shortstop, a lot of evaluators agreed the plate approach was good. He just doesn't make a lot of hard contact. We saw last year he was making much harder contact and that has come back over this last month. So, you know, I think for him, he just has to do just like what Bob said, if he could be the kind of player that gives you a 750 OPS in most seasons with his glove, I think it's going to stick around the major leagues for a long time in some capacity. And what makes him even more intriguing to me is have either of you heard him speak like an interview or anything with him? I don't know what he sounds like. We don't really know much about his personality other than what Matt Blood has told us when he's come on the show. And we know Matt Blood is a huge Joey Ortiz fan. You know how dedicated he was to meticulous what he put in his body and making sure that's right. Uh, for a full pro season but other than that like we really don't know a whole lot about him uh, physically it looks like he's he's never missed a leg day in his life i did notice that uh watching him down there in richmond but like it just adds to his intrigue uh and yeah this this is a guy who those two home runs what he hit home runs did he get two home runs in one game before mm-hmm. the break or those were, were shots yeah monster <laughs> shots uh to deep left field the wall wasn't holding those in at camden yards uh so that's that's a name that I think if you're looking at somebody to watch in the second half of the season, as far as guys who have struggled or not played that much, or hopefully you're looking to rebound in the second half, I think Joey Ortiz is at the very, very top of that list. Yeah, and Joey, if you want to end that mystery and give us an interview, we'll be more than well, more than happy to talk to you. One last point I wanted to bring up for the second half, and I want to see if Bob or Nick have anything to add on after this, but Delmarva uh, might get kind of interesting here in the next few weeks. Uh, and it has started a little bit in a way because Reed Trimble is now back. Trimble, as you may recall, had shoulder surgery over the offseason. And there were some doubts, um, you know, ahead of this season that we would see Trimble on the field at all this year because its recovery timeline was far enough out for the type of surgery he had. 
that he could have missed all of this season. He ends up making a pretty quick recovery, gets back out on the field, and he's now back in Delmarva after playing 16 games there last summer following the draft. He's appeared in three there so far, and it's off to a nice start. Three for his first nine at-bats with the Swordbirds. So you're looking at someone who could make a bit of an impact while he's there. But then you add in the possibility that we start to see players from this draft class come up. You know, Dylan Beavers, Judd Fabian, Jackson Holiday. It seems likely that all three of them get time at low A this year. And they might not be the only ones. So, Bob, do you think it's possible that we're going to look at a Delmarva box score three or four weeks from now? And it's going to look different than it does right now on a typical night. I mean, almost certainly. But first, more Max uh, Wagner slander. Completely forgot him again. <laughs> we are the worst. He'll be he'll be our John Rhodes next year, where he's the breakout candidate, right? But uh, yeah, it's going to be. It's I I think it's already fun to watch Delmarva just in a different way than the other teams in the organization right now. But yeah, I think it's going to be like just like last year. It's going to be incredibly competitive right away. Maybe not, you know quite as many offensive guys coming in to to play, but maybe some of these pitchers, I think Delmarva could certainly use some, some uh, arms right now. Yeah, it's going to be fun to watch Holiday, Beavers, um, Wagner, do not forget Wagner, Judd Fabian, uh, mix in with the likes of Michelle Desone, Creed Willems, Steven Acevedo, Frederick Bencosme. Maybe he'll be in Aberdeen by then, the way he's going. God, he's, he's something... Something else, uh, Reed Trimble. Yeah, it's really nice to see him come back and hit a double, walk twice, have a couple good games. I fully expect him to reestablish himself after, you know, he had a pretty poor showing at Delmarva. I'm assuming it could have easily been because of the shoulder injury that just wasn't taken care of in time. But get him back established. He's in our top 30, and He'll be a guy. It's almost like getting a, another brand new prospect just because he was so out of the picture this year. So, yeah, it's going to be fun to watch Delmarva in the last couple months, last month of the season. Yeah, I was actually uh, kind of had a different tune highlighting Delmarva. Uh, and it's that comment there about Delmarva's bullpen, that was my, that's been my issue. Delmarva's bullpen finds some massively creative ways to blow games and blow huge leads. Uh, I hope that box score looks a lot different for Delmarva with some new names. But to Delmarva's credit, we've talked about Creed Willems and that issue. We're not going to rehash that again. It, it's no issues there right now. But the pitching, you got Carter Baumler on the IL, Shane Davis, Ryan Long, Keegan Gillis, Hugo Beltran. They're all on the IL. Moises Chasse's on and off. That last injury was a freak injury. That, that wasn't anything he did wrong there. But he's been on and off. But you've got dudes like Davy Cruz. Uh, I don't know if you, you mentioned Davy Cruz there, but he's in Baseball America's top 30. It's like, that's just not a guy that we're just peddling out there. Like, oh, he had a good first game. Davy Cruz is a guy to watch. No, like, Baseball America's like, no, he is a guy to watch. Um, I think Juan De Los Santos has slowly been built back up. He's been a long-term project this year. But you do have those interesting names in the bullpen, like Dylan Hyde, Yaki Rivera, Miguel Padilla. But the bats, yeah, I just think the issue is not having that short season ball is affecting a lot of guys and yeah, shout out to John Mioli. He actually had a, a really good piece today looking at the trade deadline, but he kind of mentioned that like Noel Bertha Romero, Isaac DeLeon, and I think he shouted out, you know, Deson and Elio Prado's guys who they're showing flashes of things, right? But you know, it's, they're just so young and so inexperienced and it'll be fun to watch these college guys get brought into this mix to see what they have. Hopefully they can, some of these guys can maybe 
gets sent back down to Sarasota in the FCL, finish the season there, hit the reset button, or at least maybe you're not playing every single day. More learning, more off-field learning, more practice learning for these guys, and come out stronger next year, close the season on a high note. But Tremble is is a huge name. And for me, it's just for Tremble, just get at bats. Like he only played 16 games last season before he, he got hurt. Um, well, he missed a chunk of time. I don't think he got hurt. Scratch that. I don't think we ever found out why he missed a big chunk of time, but um, only 16 games, but he was only 21 years old. So I wasn't too worried. But then that news of the surgery came in December and I'm kind of shocked to see him on the field. Cause I think based on his timeline, this is kind of best case scenario for his return. So that's good to see. So hopefully there are no setbacks and you can use these last six weeks or so to kind of make a name for yourself because you know I don't really know too much about Reed Trimble except you know, he's a second round draft pick. That's that's about it. We haven't really seen him play that much. Yeah. Also in regards to Trimble that it really is just about getting him at bats. I don't care if all of those bats come at Delmarva this summer. I mean, I think that it's possible that, you know, if he comes out of the gate and is Heston cursed at tearing the cover off the ball, that you see him in Aberdeen later this summer. But if he ends up in Delmarva the rest of the way, I don't think that's a bad thing because he has very little professional experience. He just turned 22 and is a guy who was regarded as an athletic high upside prospect coming out of the drafts last year, but also kind of raw. So you knew that there were some things that the Orioles were going to have to work on, but the fact that he's back this quickly has is really exciting and not something that I was expecting, you know, back in December. So either uh, I'll start with Bob here. Any second half thoughts that we haven't covered yet that you want to mention? I'm curious just to see if there's any, you know, does Hessen Kerstad get up to double-A Bowie by the end of the year? What's Is there going to be any more surpri- surprises like that? Um, I don't know. I, I'm keeping an open mind. I want to see some movement on the pitching side. Let's get Drew Rahm up to triple-A Norfolk at some point. Let's get Carlos Tavera up to double-A Bowie, some of those guys at, at Aberdeen. Yeah, it's Aberdeen, not Frederick. Um, yeah, that's. I just want to see how the organization handles promotions this late in the season, if they're going to make a push, you know, for any playoffs or – does someone at double A make it up to triple A because the season goes longer? That's pretty much it. I'm I'm in it for the long haul. I'm watching every day. So I don't know. I'm interested in everything. True. Uh that's, that's about the best answer we can give there. But um I, more specifically, I guess before the season started, I was really anticipating big things from this Aberdeen pitching staff. And we saw that from a lot of these guys. And now looking at the second half, I'm actually really intrigued by these bats in this Aberdeen lineup. That's where my attention is being focused now. Uh, you know, looking at TT Bowens is having, I thought I'm over here sitting here thinking that TT Bowens is kind of cooling off. And then he's, he hit like almost 400 over the weekend with I don't know four or five walks. He had three walks on Sunday, but TT Bowens has remained consistently hot all season long. So I want to see, does he get promoted to Bowie? And what is TT? Who is TT Bowens at the plate against more advanced competition? Uh, Colin Burns had a fantastic weekend. We'll talk more about him later. Daryl Hernandez, can he continue to be one of the most slip on prospects in all this this entire system? Can Ryan Higgins get things moving along? I've, we've always been intrigued by that power in his bat. Jacob Teeter, can can he get off the IL? I'm not sure exactly how serious his injury was, but 
Teeter was, was a definitely intriguing prospect. So let's see what he can do. And you look at that outfield, Hessen Kershaw, like you mentioned, and John Rhodes. I want John Rhodes and Bowie like yesterday. I want to see what he can do against double A pitching because he hit a mammoth home run on Sunday and he just hits everything so hard. And he plays almost every position imaginable, it seems like. Is he playing second base also? I saw uh, whatever, but I mean, he plays all over the field. So he's a really intriguing prospect as well. Dante Williams, I've never been a massive fan of since the draft, but he always seems to do something to endear me to him. So I'm intrigued to see if he can pick it up in the second half as well. But yeah, I'm excited to watch these Aberdeen at bats when when they're on the road and you can actually like watch them, I guess. Well, and with that, I think that's actually a good transition point into our final segment of the show where we shout out players outside of our top 30, whether it's been for a good game, for a good week, um, or just something interesting in their stat line we want to talk about. We actually did not do this our last two shows in order to focus on the draft. So um, between that and the short week last week, a little bit of an unconventional time period, but we got some players that are pretty – performing really well right now, both hitters and pitchers. And I'm going to start with Bob, who's going to talk about one of the players that Nick just mentioned. Yeah, I mean, I don't think anyone could start the second half better than Colin Burns did, shortstop at Aberdeen. You know, he plays really solid defense up the middle at shortstop. Six for 15 in the three games since the break. Two doubles, two home runs, only struck out one time. For the season, he has a 17% strikeout rate which is really good. So he's a contact hitter who's starting to show a little bit more power. He's got 17 doubles, six home runs on the season, 44 runs, 29 RBIs, 10 stolen bases, like 107 WRC plus, just a really underrated guy who's, you know, he's just going to consistently move up the system. And you never know with a guy like that, if the, if the power can actually develop there, then you have a really interesting player on your hands. And for my pitcher, I'm going with Moises Chasse, who was also mentioned earlier, just, he finally got back after what falling off the mound. You know, that was a little scary, but he came back in, uh, was it yesterday? No, Saturday. I think it was Saturday's game. He pitched two innings, struck out two batters, scoreless. And uh, yeah, just like to see him get back, get some consistent innings because the arm talent is there to be a breakout pitcher in a big way, despite the results not showing it so far. True. I'm going with my hitter is Shane Fontana because I have a question for people to think about. Uh, is Shane Fontana for real? Like, is he? He had four hits over the weekend, seven RBIs in three games in Richmond. Missed. He's missed a, a good chunk of time this year. He's only played in 37 games with Bowie, but he's hitting 292 with a 414 on base percentage, five home runs, 883 OPS. He's been hitting in the middle of this Bowie lineup for a long time now. He is a bit older. He's 25, so he's about a year older than you know the competition in Double A. But a 2019 draft pick, so COVID wrecked his timeline. He's a D2 product at that, and so I'm I'm hoping he gets moved up to Triple A soon. Because I don't think he will because of the log jam and the fact that he only has 37 games in Bowie. But yeah, you know, it's literally no one outside of Adam Pole, one of the voices of the Bay Sox. So no one outside of the organization is talking about Shane Fontana. And it's really hard to ignore his production this season. So I'm curious to know. Like, that's that's pretty impressive numbers by him. Uh, and my pitcher, I just learned about today. So I'm going to share him. Uh, Jose Leandro in the Dominican Summer League. We're going to go way down low here. Obviously, we don't get much info out of the DSL, mostly stat line scouting, which I hate. But luckily, we've been given a few tidbits of information here and there on some guys, which have been kind of eye-opening. But 
one guy that I have not looked at all before today was left-handed pitcher Jose Leandro. I was looking at the box score today to put out the final score tweet, and Leandro's numbers stood out to me. Four and two-thirds innings, two hits, no runs, two walks, four strikeouts. But on the year, he's got 14 and two-thirds innings, a 0.61 ERA, 0.82 whip, a 106 average against 20 strikeouts. So he is 20. He's a bit older, but he was a May 2022 signing. So that means what if my international rules laws are correct in my head, he's had to sign for what bare minimum Uh, probably didn't go against the cap unless they had some extra bonus pool money laying around, but signed for very, very little, but he's six, three lefty big guy. Not a lot of video, except a bunch of videos of his curveball. He's out there throwing a big breaker, but he's now in my list of names to watch very closely. And I imagine because of his agent success, he's probably in Sarasota before the end of the season. Yeah, and it's it's interesting. You know, you always hear about the late late developing pitchers that come out of the international market, and I think that's actually how the Astros got a lot of their good international pitchers. So great to see there. I think they did the same type of thing with Jarlin Guerrero uh, somewhat recently, and with Shane Fontana. I don't know what to think either. Like I thought, Dylan Harris might be something earlier this season. Turns out probably not, but. 883 OPS in Bowie and he had an 847 OPS in a short time at Aberdeen when he was coming back. So if nothing else, he's at least earned himself a starting spot in AAA Norfolk next year. That's for sure. I'll go with a Dominican Summer League player for my hitter this week, and that is Aaron Estrada. Uh, Estrada has pretty much had, has had a remarkable season at the plate. He's only 17 years old. He has an OPS of over 1,000, is hitting 352, and has struck out as many times as he has walked this season, 16 strikeouts against 16 walks. And he has third home run of the season on Friday. Now, as Nick said, we don't want to scout the stat line. And, you know, because Estrada is in the Dominican summer league and he was not one of the highly rated players in his international free agent class with the Orioles, we don't have a lot of information on him, but we have seen video. Uh, it's on our Twitter at BSL and the birds. You can check it out there. He has a really nice line drive stroke from the left side. And for a guy who is small, uh, for his listing right now is five foot eight, 142 pounds. Uh, not 142 he hits the ball <laughs> really hard, uh, good swing. So definitely someone you want to watch and think about how we're talking about Frederick Ben Cosme right now. Um, maybe this is the Frederick Ben Cosme of next year because a year ago this time, Ben Cosme was that guy who was putting up ridiculous numbers that we had not heard of before and that we didn't have a lot of information on. This year, it's Aaron Estrada uh, and definitely a guy you want to keep an eye on. And my pitcher is Houston Roth. He pitched on Friday and picked up the win in Aberdeen's victory over Greenville Three shutout innings, two hits, no walks, and five strikeouts. What's interesting is that Roth has been excellent over the month of July. 12 innings pitched, 19 strikeouts against three walks with a 3.75 ERA. So Roth, and that ERA largely inflated, by the way, by his first outing back on July 2nd when he gave up three earned runs and three innings against Winston-Salem. Since then, he has allowed just two runs in nine innings of work. Uh, so Roth, who was one of the more reliable pitchers at Del Marva for most of last year until he faded down the stretch, 
has been solid for Aberdeen, but is actually picking up the pace and getting better uh, as we get into the summer. Yeah, I'm a fan of Roth. He's got a, a nice uh, breaking ball. And Estrada, I am definitely starting to buy the hype on him. After seeing that video, I just love that energetic. Just he's just seems like he's got a ton of energy at the plate. Uh, no wasted motion. He's he's ready to go. 5'8", definitely not 142. Probably more like, I don't know, 160. <laughs> oh, even skinny. I don't know. I feel like he's he's a little bit more built than 142, but what do I know? Uh, that's my height. I I don't know if I've ever been that skinny. Um, but 14.2% walk rate and K rate, that's great on both sides. His WOBA is almost 500. It's 498, 178 WRC plus 213 ISO. Like, I, I want to see him in the FCL before this year is over. Like, that. let's get eyes on him. Let's get some Garfield uh, camera action and see more of that nice swing he's got. I, I think he could be a, a serious breakout star. Just perfect comparison to Ben Cosme, Zach, for sure. Yeah. And I, I mean, talking about all these DSL guys, you go back in the pitchers, especially like these are all notes that Kobe Perez said when he was on our show. It's Ronald Acuna didn't sign for big bucks. Some of the, mm-hmm. the top international talents in today's game did not sign for big dollars. And we, we are not saying Ben Cosme and Estrada or Ronald Acuna or your Sotos or anybody at all. But uh, just because they didn't sign for a lot of money doesn't mean they're not guys to pay attention to. And you're starting to see some of these really under the radar guys step up in big ways and it's fun to see them starting to excel like in the Cosme's case in the upper level well lower levels at least stateside here and Ben Cosme will not slow down in Del Marva since, since we're talking about him. The guy's almost hitting four hundred I think he's what three seventy five now after this weekend. A couple of multi hit performances as well. Ben Cosme won't stop and it's that is a, a thing of beauty. Him and Luis Valdez and his forty seven mm-hmm. stolen bases now just these guys are electric. So much fun to watch. If if nothing else, it will help take your mind off the fact that Michael Hernandez is batting 119 with a 434 OPS. No. If, can we please? I will pay MILB package price. I will pay double if we can watch Dominican Summer League games because I feel like those are the most fun baseball games. Sometimes you see it. They're like 18 total errors in those games and like 37 walks, but they're still done in like two hours and 45 minutes. Uh, so they are action-packed, and I, I would uh, – if we get eyes on those games somehow, that's that's the dream. Well, that does it for this week. So we will be back next week with some trade deadline coverage, either of deals that have happened or haven't happened yet that might happen. And we'll also talk about some minor league stuff as well, including hopefully more draft signings. In the meantime, check out BaltimoreSportsAndLife.com. Nick has a piece that he talked about earlier this show that should be up this week. And there's a lot of other great coverage on there of the Orioles, Ravens, college sports, and more. And be sure to hop on the message board and join discussion with fellow readers of the site as well as the site's contributors. And follow us on Twitter at BSL and the Birds. We'll have highlights coming out there all week as well as details on next week's show. For Bob Phelan and Nick Stevens, this is Zach Spedden. You've been listening to On the Birds. <laughs>